Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Back in April, we organised the inaugural Penguin General Bloggers' Night, hosted by Susie Fay and held in the Union Club in Soho. Book bloggers from up and down the country joined us for an evening of food, drink, and most importantly, books, as we were treated to readings from Joe Dunthorne, Ross Raisin, Hisham Matar, Jean Kwok, Helen Gordon, Luke Williams, and Rebecca Hunt. For those of you who couldn't make it on the night, we recorded it all, and you can listen to it here. Uh, welcome to our Penguin General Bloggers Drinks on this lovely spring evening. Um, I'm Amelia Fairney. I'm the uh, Publicity Director for Penguin General, and thanks very much to all of you for coming, uh, the authors as well as the bloggers. Um, I'm going to hand over to Susie Fay, who, is, uh, who has been a stalwart supporter of our books over very many years. Well, perhaps I shouldn't say too many. <laughs> she might not thank me for that. Um, and uh, she's going to introduce you to an evening of uh, readings from some of our authors who have books forthcoming this summer and autumn, uh, and a couple whose books are already out. Um, and I hope you enjoy the evening. Thanks for coming and uh, enjoy yourself. Thanks, Amelia. It's actually 20 years. I don't mind who knows it. It is at the top of my blog, so um, I will wear my 20 years of reviewing with pride. Uh, so welcome, everybody, to this very special evening. We've got some really exciting authors and some wonderful books for you. Um, there are some hotly anticipated second novels and some wonderful debuts. So uh, let's crack on. Uh, we're going to start with Joe Dunthorne, um, who has at least two strings to his bow. I mean, he is a wonderful novelist, a rather man of the moment because of the film Submarine that's out, the film of his debut. And his debut got really fantastic reviews. And uh, he is also a poet, and he has a fabulous little poetry pamphlet out with Faber and Faber. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but it's really cracking stuff. And was also in the Blood Axe Anthology voice recognition, which is 21 Poets for the 21st Century, something like that. So um, a really exciting talent. Um, and he's here to tell us a little bit about his second novel, which is called Wild Abandon, and... Um, maybe read a little bit from it. Sneak preview, because there's nothing available of this. So, uh, welcome, Joe Dunthorne. Hello. Um, so, I'm going to read a little, slightly terrifying, because I haven't read anything from it yet, but uh, a little bit from my new novel called Wild Abandon, and... Um, it's set in a commune in um, West Wales, and it's about a family. Well, it's about the commune at large, but also about the family. It's a, a daughter, little brother, and mum and a dad. And the little boy, uh, Albert, who's 11 years old, is has been convinced that the world is going to end uh, in 2012. And he's been making all sorts of preparations for that. Um, his mum is quite keen for him to stop believing that the world is going to end. And she has been trying to think of ways to get him to see beyond this. And one of the things she comes up with is uh, this kind of 
semi-meditation game where you uh, visualize meeting yourself five years five year, your, yourself five years older. Um, and in the game, you um, imagine walking down a corridor and on the like a hotel corridor and on the uh, the room doors is a number and each number corresponds to an age. So if there's a room that has a number 10 on it, then your 10-year-old self is inside and 30 or 30-year-old self. So um, she makes her son close his eyes and she says, walk down this corridor. And he's 11, so he goes past his bedroom and he goes up to uh, number 16. The idea being that if he can meet and speak to his 16-year-old self, his 16-year-old self will um, show him that all the things that he's currently concerned with are no longer of relevance to him and he's moved on in theory and um, so it's a conversation inside the 11 year old boy's head between himself and as he imagines he'll be when he's 16 I don't know how I'm going to signify both (laughs) both people but maybe I'll just hope that you get it Albert yo I'm 16 I'm 11 how's the next dimension insane I knew it would be so what happened Well, it all started with the swarms, not just one insect, but all of them, over land and sea to desiccate the earth. You know some words. I was (laughs) was standing on the flat roof when they blocked out the sun. You could hear them. They were making a documentary about me, and they got it on camera when I said, fetch the goddamn gasoline. Wow, yes. Then I poured the gasoline through the woods in a circle around the big house. My henchmen all stood at different points along the circle, each with a box of matches. I went up on the flat roof, and everyone waited for my signal. I knew that the forest would only burn for so long, and we had to time it right so the swarm would pass by before the forest burned out. Makes sense. I could see the mega swarm coming over the horizon. Locusts, hornets, wasps, horseflies, mantises, midges. And I was like, hold, hold. And I could hear the scrit, scrit, scrit of the superintelligent ant armies approaching, carrying hundreds of times their own weight in weaponry. And still I was like, hold, hold. And behind the ants, the legions of ticks, mites, beetles, rolling their ball bearings, even spiders, although not strictly insects, swinging through the trees behind. And still I yelled, hold. Hold, then I said, let's watch this city burn, which was a signal. All of which was on camera, of course. And the flames went racing up the trees, shooting into the sky. And my team ran back to the safety of the house. And we waited and watched as the hordes of ants fried themselves to the floor. Huge clouds of flaming insects in the air like fireworks in slow motion. The smoke acted as a force field, directing most of them around us. But still, a few broke through. Spiders, alight but alive, running at us through the undergrowth gnashing their mandibles. So we went out in the yard with cans of links and lighters. And we went hand to hand with those homos. Who won? Guess. Boomtown. Exactly. All in the documentary? We. You've learned French? We. (laughs) Then what? Then we were the only people left on the planet. My sister was at her boyfriend's house and then at university, so she was dead. No! Sorry, but yes. Everyone else is fine. Mum and Dad are living together again, and I can do anything I want, like wander around in old libraries and castles and explore hotels. That's pretty cool, but I'm sad about my sister. It was her choice. You'll try to explain to her about how wrong she is and the world really is going to end, but she won't listen. She's sometimes very insulting. She even tries to kill mum and dad by telling them lies about how the world won't end. You may not want to hear this, but pretty soon you'll have to think of a way to stop her disrupting your vital preparations. 
Doesn't she realize that she is wrong and come back to the community just in time? In a fairy tale, maybe, but this is real life, champ. That was brilliant. Thank you very much, Joe. I love the idea of that game. I'm already mentally going up and down that corridor looking at vast numbers on the door. Um, we are now going to go to Luke Williams, who's um, a debutante. Um, so uh, an unknown quantity, I guess. Um, he's already off to a very good start as a writer because he divides his time. He divides his time between London and Edinburgh and all the best writers, if you look at their blurbs, you know, they, it's always, you know, between San Moritz and New York City, so we're getting there. Um, he was brought up in Fife. His debut novel is called The Echo Chamber. It's been wildly praised by Ali Smith, which is a very good thing to have on your card. He studied uh, creative writing at UEA and um, under the aegis of the great W.G. Sebolt, um, who is a big influence, which... I find completely fascinating. So to hear a little bit more about that, perhaps, and to hear from the echo chamber, here is Luke Williams. Uh, thanks. Hi. Um, I'm just going to read from the start. Excuse me a sec. Everyone must have this problem after you, Joe, or most people. Um, I'm just going to read from the start of um, my book, The Echo Chamber. Um, this probably doesn't... I don't think bear any resemblance to Sybil's writing. Perhaps there's some influences later. It's quite a um, digressionary book, let's say, and the styles change as it goes on. Um, but these first ones are just some questions my narrator is asking herself. The chapter's called First Questions. Who are you? My name is Evie Stepman. Where were you born? Children's Hospital, Lagos. When? 2nd of August, 1946. In any special circumstance, I was late. How late? Two months. Go on. I was not ready to emerge after the allotted time. Happy in the womb, free from worldly concerns and the rules of men, I felt no impulse to move on. I possessed the fetal license, indeed the prerogative, to gamble. Trembles met with... Do you feel him kick, dear, or certainly a strong one? Hands, ears, and lips were pressed to my mother's stomach. It's like a factory in there, joked my father. I can hear clattering machinery, a baby construction works. I delighted in my formlessness, half fish, half girl, a mermaid. I rolled as if free from gravity. I luxuriated in the confusion, such licensed disorder. How did your belated arrival affect your life? It killed my mother. Yes. It caused my father to lose his faith in progress. Yes. It gave me the power of listening. How so? In the evenings, when each, each day's duty as district officer was complete, my father crouched beside my mother and chattered to her swollen belly. Kneeling awkwardly on the hardwood veranda floor, his hands gripping the reclining chair upon which my mother lay, he read me Dickens and Darwin, the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde, Typhoon and Treasure Island. He recited Hausman and the Lord's Prayer. I learned how their elephant got his trunk, the principles of indirect rule. We entered with Eladrisi into distant lands where fantastic races lived. 
We accompanied Mongol Park north toward Timbuktu and with Sir Frederick Lugard sojourned at Lokacha. He discoursed on zoos and craniology. He talked of masks, of goblins, turning from myth to biology to Christmas. One evening, bent over my mother's stomach as he attended to the names of the seven seas in between the Indian and the Aegean, I punched him on the nose. Undeterred, he opened the Bible and recited the seven deadly sins. While I turned somersaults and figures of eight, my father worked through the volumes that informed his inconstant mind. And perhaps it was the monotony of this persistent address, accompanied by the tick-tock of father's pocket watch, which invariably slipped from its niche to rest an inverse stethoscope on mother's belly that bred in me the will to listen. He spoke in the most formal and stilted manner, as if I was a schoolboy, his voice loud and always earnest. Each novel, history, treatise sounded similar, and I found it hard to distinguish H. Ryder Haggard from Aunt Feeney's letters, the great chain of being from the Nocturnorama at Edinburgh Zoo. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're now going to move on to Jean Kwok, who has is another person with many, many um, strings to her bow. Um, we're perhaps going to hear her read a little bit from her novel, Girl in Translation, which is shortly out in paperback. And it's a really wonderful story of a young girl who has to move from Hong Kong to Brooklyn and finds herself living in the most run-down and horrible apartment and really finding it quite difficult to get to grips with the English language. And it, it's really profound and funny and brilliant, I think, about misunderstandings of language, even between people who speak, ironically, the same language. Um, and I was chatting to Jean earlier, and she also has something called a death grip, which we probably don't have time to go into now, but if you're around later, she might explain. Um, and I don't think I said at the beginning um, about mobile phones. I'm sure you've all switched yours off, but if any do go off, Jean will give you the death grip. So um, please welcome the wonderful Jean Kwok. Hi, I am actually going to move this thing <laughs> because it makes me feel short. Um, <laughs> thank you all for coming tonight, and uh, I'm really so honored to be a part of this incredible group of really, really talented authors. Um, I am actually not going to read, <laughs> as you can tell from my lack of reading matter. I was told that I only have two to four minutes, and I am going to use my two to four minutes to talk to you a little bit about my book and a little bit about where that book came from and why I wrote it. Um, I'm the author of a book called Girl in Translation. It came out just a couple of months ago. It came out in 2010. And it is the story of Kimberly Chang, who moves when she is 11 years old, from Hong Kong to Brooklyn, New York. She moves her, with her mother, and her mother was actually a well-to-do music teacher in Hong Kong. But when they get to the United States, what they find is not what they had seen in the magazines and newspapers of Hong Kong. Instead of living in a skyscraper in Manhattan, they are living in the slums of Brooklyn. 
They're in an apartment that is incredibly run down with roaches and rats. And the worst thing is that the apartment is not heated. So there is no central heating through the bitterly cold New York winters. Furthermore, um, Kimberly's mother doesn't have the job that she was promised, but instead needs to work in a clothing factory in Chinatown in order to survive. And Kimberly also has to go and work in the factory after school because her mother cannot stay home with her and they are paid by the piece illegally, which means that every little bit helps when you are trying to survive. So um, luckily, Kimberly has a talent, and that is a talent for school. And although at the beginning she struggles because she doesn't speak English, when she does slowly learn English, she starts leading a double life where she is a schoolgirl at a very exclusive private school during the day where she has won a scholarship. And by night, she's a factory sweatshop worker with her mother. And eventually, she falls in love with two different young men, one from each world. And in the end, she has to choose between the two men and also, most importantly, between her own two futures to choose who she is going to be. Since the book has come out, it has gotten a lot of attention. And the very first question I get asked by everyone is the one that I very naively thought no one would ever ask me, which is, is this based upon your own life? And, you know, it is obviously a novel, which means it is a work of fiction. However, I did write it hoping to talk about worlds that I had seen and experienced myself. So my family and I moved from Hong Kong to Brooklyn when I was five years old. So I was actually younger than Kimberly in the novel. And we um, were placed into an apartment that was exactly like the one in the novel. So all of the descriptions in the novel are true. And we didn't have any central heating either. And I remember that in the winters, where it can easily really be, you know, minus 5 Fahrenheit or minus 20 Celsius, you, like, the walls would just emanate this kind of cold back at you because we were the only people living in the apartment. So it got colder and colder. And we used to leave the oven door on day and night through the whole winters just to have any kind of heat, and especially because we often had to bring home work from the clothing factory, which is another part of the novel that is true. And the only way to keep your fingers warm enough to be able to keep working was to sit by that oven and to work right next to the oven. And uh, the windows in the back didn't have glass, actually, so we only covered them up with garbage bags. And the windows in the front did have glass because they were visible to the street. Um, but on the inside of our flat, there was a pane of ice the entire winter long. So, and then after school, I used to go along with my family to a factory in Chinatown to work because there was no one who could actually stay home with me. Um, luckily, like Kimberly, I did also have a talent, and I had a talent for school. So um, I had a tremendous lack of other talents. So <laughs> well, the funny thing is that to my family at home, I was this complete failure as a Chinese daughter in every way because I couldn't cook, 
I couldn't clean. I was this dreamy, impractical child. And I was extremely not obedient, as you can tell from the fact that I am not reading here. So I was always in trouble. And then I had this strange ability just to be able to learn what was told to me in school and to give it back to you. So this ability took me eventually to Harvard. And when I was accepted to Harvard, my family was thrilled, not because it is a prestigious university where I could get an excellent education, but they were thrilled because they would not have to find me a husband. <laughs> yes, that was clearly the one task that was going to be impossible uh, for them. So in any case, to this day, they are sorry for my husband when they see him. They say, are you all right? <laughs> no, they do. Okay. So, um, but um, to conclude, what I would like to say is that I actually really wrote this book for my mother because, you know, some of you have read it, some of you haven't, but the mother-daughter relationship is really important in the novel. And when I was a child and growing up, I do remember that my mother never went to bed before I did. She was always sitting by that oven working on sacks of clothing until late into the night. And I'm happy to say that we did make it out of that situation, and, and she did have many happy years, but she did just pass away in October. So for me, it's especially meaningful to be invited to events like this and to be able to give readings and publicity. I'll be going on a national tour in the U.S. in about a month, also for the paperback, and I'm coming back here, I heard, also for the paperback in June. But it has a personal meaning to me because I do feel like you know, in a way that she lives on in the novel. And it's my hope that when people read the novel, they'll say, well, the next time I see a foreigner who looks funny and has weird bags and can't even speak English, that they might think, oh, that could be a person who in her own language and culture is a very articulate, wise, funny person, just like Kimberly Chang's mother. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jean. It really is a fantastic book for those of you who haven't read it. And learning that and hearing a little bit of the background just makes it all the more poignant. So I really recommend it. Um, and now on to Ross Raisin, who, um, with his debut God's Own Country, it really, this was really one of the most striking and successful debuts of recent years. Uh, widely reviewed, widely raved about. It was a very, very striking book with the kind of voice that you don't get very often in fiction. And when you hear it, you know it's the real thing. Um, so no pressure there, Ross, with your, your next one. Um, he won all sorts of prizes and was nominated for things and shortlisted for things. Um, and the next one um, sounds like it goes in a completely different direction, um, which is just what we expect from brilliant-born writers. Um, I've got various background bits of information, um, such as born in Keithley. <laughs> it's a nice place. Uh, studied creative writing at Goldsmiths. And um, the kind of little neat story about that was working as a waiter while he was writing, writing this book. Um, but now um, here he is um, to tell us a little bit more about that um, hotly awaited second novel, Ross Raisin. We're going to have a break after this. I think I should probably follow that by saying that this, this could sound like a bit of a car crash, um, just because 
Um, it's the first time I've read it publicly, which is fine in itself, but the book is um, it, the book is slightly dialectal. Not, not a lot, but enough that I, I was trying to read it today in my own voice, and it just didn't, in my own accent, it just didn't sound, it just sounds all wrong. And so, my, my, yeah, my, so my, my, my plan is to read it in something approaching the dialect, which is Glaswegian, um, which is what I'm going to try and do now. But I think nearer the time, nearer the publication, I say this to you, actually I'm just having a conversation with Joe, but uh, nearer the time, Joe, I'm going to have a uh, few sessions with a voice coach who I, who, I, who I worked with actually when I was doing the early drafts to get a kind of sense of the flow and the rhythm of the language. Um, and she will make me good, I think. So at the moment, it's a bit... It just doesn't... Well, you'll see. But <laughs> as my wife said when I uh, read it to her this afternoon, you just sound like Andy Murray, um, which, which isn't good. Which isn't good. The book, the book um, I'll read from an early chapter. The book is about a, um, an ex-shipyard worker on the Clyde whose wife dies, which is how the book begins. Um, and as the book progresses, you begin to realise that his wife died from something related to the main character, Mick, working on the shipyards. Um, and so the book is about industry and it's about guilt and it's about... It's about... I suppose it's it's quite a lot about how what happens to a community, what's the impact on a community when the industry upon which that is pivoted dies or is, or is killed, which actually feels quite pertinent uh, today. Um, given the budget's just been done. Right. In, in my head, I'm saying my little line in Scottish, in Glaswegian, which, uh, which helps me get into it, which is, I can't cook a goose tonight, which means I can't cook a goose tonight. Okay. The Maltese stand solid in a row like a picket line looking down over the red tenement streets filing toward the Clyde. From upon the 17th storey, the views are beauty. You can see the glimmering glass roof of the botanical gardens north of the river, Kelvin Grove Park, the exhibition centre Silver Armadillo, and further on, the skyline of the Campsie Fells, keeping the city in. Joe doesn't much look out on these things, though. If he's looking out, it'll be at Ibrox. The ground's a few minutes' walk from the multi-just, on match days, he can see the supporters coming in from all around, crowds growing on the pavements outside the pubs, pouring in through the streets. This morning, but he's having a sea out the window as the sun comes up, watching the dismal light peter in through the streets that run straight lines toward the river, bending only where they have to go around the stadium, or broken where they've took out the tenements and no got around to replacing them. By the river, there's the twinkling new apartment blocks at Glasgow Harbour, the dry ski centre, and down the water, the shipyards, what's left of them. Govan, this near side, squats down across the water. From where he is, he can just make out the top of HMS Defender, sat at her berth at Govan. She looks from up here like an airfix model, with her miniature gun and helicopter pad on the flight deck. That's where Joe is headed, the light nearly up now, and him away out the flat, clicking shut the front door to go pick up Soggy. It is six o'clock. There's never anybody about in the building now, except for one queer old ticket he sees on the stairs sometimes, who gets up to give his dog a walk. 
It isn't so bad. It's time in the morning. He's tired, but it's fine. The back shift is the one that kills him. He presses the button and the lift doors are straight open. They cleaned it out a week or two ago, so it's no bogging like it was, but it's been wrote on already. Cunt, one wall says, nice and simple. He gets out on the ninth floor and goes towards Suggies. He chaps on the door. There's a light on underneath, a good sign. He's tired enough himself the morning, but he's pure sparkling compared to Suggy. There's times he'll be banging five minutes before there's any answer, and a couple of mornings he's resorted to giving it a weak clang with the fire extinguisher off the wall fixing. The doors looked better, in truth. The day, though, Suggy opens it on the second knock. He's in his pants still, but he's up. Come in, mate. Joe follows him in and sits on the settee while Suggy goes in to the bedroom to get dressed. Television is on, and he looks at it without paying much attention. There's a fair number of empty cans about, on the table, over the floor. Suggy must have had some mates round. Nonetheless, he's dressed quick enough, appearing at the bedroom door in a couple of minutes. Red eyes, grinning, his yellow helmet in his hand. Right, we off, well. Once onto the street, the two apprentices get making their way briskly through the crisp, cool morning toward the yard. They go over Saturday's match again, a couple of times, but most of the way they walk without talking. The roads are near deserted. A few cars. The old boy from their block, coming back with his dog. They give him a nod. Wasn't always like this, course. Their fathers and their grandfathers have shown them enough photographs. Photographs there's plenty of in the grand, crumbling library they're walking past now. How it used to be. These same streets a hundred years ago. Sixty. Forty even. Mobbed with hundreds of workers starting out for the day shift. Tired and quiet, like this pair, getting moving. The noise of boots on the road. The hooter about to sound up the way and signal the start of work. The occasional wife in a tenement window in a nightdress, watching her man off and him finding his way into his own team, grouping up as they move on. Riveters, gawkers, blacksmiths, the welders clear visible in their spotted hats and their leathers, boilermakers, platers, the whole black squad marching on up the road. And at the back, the apprentices pushing about. A different story than now. I'll stop there, actually. It feels like a convenient point to stop. Thanks. We are now uh, going on to the second half of our packed programme, um, and I'm going to introduce a writer who... There are all sorts of different writers, but the really annoying ones are the ones that have a great idea, and you just think, I wish I had... You know, if I'd had that idea, writing that book would be so easy. You know, damn, damn the woman. Um, so I hate the next... Um, I hate Rebecca. <laughs> um, her novel is uh, Mr. Chartwell, which, again, uh, has really been an amazing success. Um, the brilliant idea, um, it's, it's a kind of extraordinary story, but it, it's the black dog of Churchill. What if he was a kind of black dog? Um, it sounds nuts, but, you know, a talking black dog who is really um, quite a sinister character, um, and it's, you know, it's not all laughs and giggles. Um, it's a really profound and interesting piece of work. Um, we have the two characters, one of whom is Winston Churchill, um, and another character, Esther, shares this black dog who... Um, well, it's a very gripping story and a brilliant idea. It's wonderfully executed, because if I'd had that idea, I wouldn't have executed it anywhere near as brilliantly. 
um, as Rebecca has done. So I'm just going to ask her to read a little bit and perhaps tell us a little bit more about the book. Thanks very much. Okay. So basically, um, as you heard, Mr. Chartwell tells the story of um, Winston Churchill's Black Dog of Depression, and he's a real dog. A huge, walking, talking, quite hideous dog who also goes by the name of Black Pat. And he's lodging um, with a young widow named Esther Hammans, as well as visiting Churchill as he approaches retirement. And this is chapter 24. And so we're at Esther's house and uh, Black Pat's there lodging with her. And it's three o'clock in the morning. Okay. Esther awoke with a gentle jolt. The primitive departments of her brain, the units that dealt with anciently evolved instincts, were wiring encrypted telegrams to her consciousness. They told Esther in a subtle siren that Black Pat was near. The sirens were insistent. He was very close. It took a minute of hard concentration as she listened through the shades of silence, but then it came. Underneath the sound of the sleeping street, the sound of her own breathing, was the ambience of an animal. Esther stared at the bottom of her bedroom door, at the gap there. The light in the porch was always left on at night, drawing a thin line under her door. Not tonight. The door strained in its frame, a weight barricaded against it. An edgy chewing of her inner cheeks, Esther tried to think of something appropriate to say. Are you comfortable out there? Black Pat spoke with his chin on the carpet. Compared to what? So he was lying by her bedroom. It was nothing. If it seemed to have an aftertaste, then Esther decided this was surely the work of an inventive mind. They talked with late-night voices through the shut door, mumbles in the hinterland of dark, and her inventive mind got the better of her. Do you know, she said, playing the casual observer, I'm finding you're being there a bit. Black Pat's answer was ridiculous. Beatnik. (laughs) No, I was thinking more that it's a bit creepy. Not beatnik. Black Pat didn't believe it. It is quite unconventional. She gave him that. And also quite... Should she say it? She said it. Quite unconventionally creepy. (laughs) Quite a lot. Really a lot, actually. (sighs) Black Pat had the tone of innocent denial, firmly innocent. I'm just an old hound dog, (laughs) trying to get some sleep. Right outside my door when I'm in bed. Couldn't you be an old hound somewhere else? (laughs) Black Pat shifted his waist. The cathedral of ribs aching from the bare floor. A chime of pain from his shoulder blade made him say... and nurse it into another position. He said, well, I hope you're happy in your bed, your skeletally collaborating bed. This floor is... Out came a tinny whine. Oh, could I come in there with you? He made a puppyish, earnest little noise. Esther made a gagging face at her wardrobe, disgusted. No, absolutely... 
She searched for a word. She settled for this. Oh. <laughs> Both parties retreated. A quiet grinding on the other side of the door made the party in the bedroom suspicious. Are you eating something? I am not, said Black Pat, filing his teeth on a sheep's pelvis he had rescued from a ditch. The sumptuous taste of decayed bone. He gnawed a loving hole in one edge, scrubbing his tongue into the cavity. He let out his puppyish whine again. Oh, please let me come in there with you. Please, Esther. Go away, she said. Even though the floor's too, he hit the floor with a paw, a punishing glow. But I'm not allowed in, he said sadly, so very sorry for himself. You won't let me in, he said again, such a sad dog. There was a subtle transformation. Oblongs of streetlight moving across his eyes. He said to the pelvis in an inaudible slip of breath, Yet. Uh, Ross, I think she beat you there. Actually giving voice to a dog is even better than doing an entirely different accent. So, uh, well, that's quite, quite impressive. Mr. Chartwell completely creeped me out. Black Pat. I mean, I just thought it was such a brilliant character um, and such a great book. So thanks very much. Um, we're uh, down to the last two. They've really got to um, raise the game here after all these talking dogs and things. But I'm... I'm fully convinced that they'll be able to do so. Um, I will now call upon Helen Gordon to tell us a little bit about her debut novel. Um, it's called Landfall. I'm afraid it's the one I know the least about. It's very exciting. I'll be grabbing a proof myself. So I was talking to her publisher a little bit earlier on. Um, and it just sounded so fantastically exciting and brilliant and has an amazing ending. It's got a great opening and a great ending and everything in the middle is great too so I mean I really can't wait and then it's funny what you put down I've put grew up in Croydon as if this is is that right I, I don't know why you think that's the kind of key to it but anyway grew up in Croydon and um, was an associate editor of Granta magazine very literary don't you know um, so there we go I mean we're all very intrigued so Helen please um, come and tell us a little bit more and read a little bit from you're, you look really scared. <laughs> you're, you're okay. <laughs> it's going to be great. So, um, Landfall, my novel, is the story of a woman called Alice, who's an art critic who lives in London and leaves to house-sit for her parents in the suburbs, somewhere that might be a bit like Croydon. Um, <laughs> and this extract, uh, Alice has somehow has ended up having her 16-year-old cousin and a large dog foisted on her. The dog doesn't talk. The cousin, has, the cousin is American, and I'm not going to do an American accent. So, <laughs> here we go. She turned at the traffic lights and passed one final row of 1920s semis, their outer walls pebble-dashed to describe the cheap brickwork beneath. If you travelled directly from Trafalgar Square along the old London road, this was where you ended up out where the first fields lapped against the edges of the London sprawl. To the right, three horses stood, switching their tails, welcoming visitors to pony-bedecked, banker-drenched Surrey, its houses still heavy with silent prosperity. It's too hot, said Emily. 
I think I feel sick. Why are all the roads so twisted here? She stuck her fingertips out of the window to feel the breeze across them. How long would it take for us to drive across the country? Which way? From the bottom of Cornwall to the top of Scotland, say, would take around 14 hours straight? Right, said Emily. 14 hours, yup. She nodded as though this confirmed something, sunk down further into her seat and then let out a howl. I forgot my phone charger, we have to go back. Excited by the noise, Selkirk barked loudly, causing Alice to swing towards the verge. Don't do that, and we're not going back for a bloody phone charger. Emily scowled and closed her eyes. After a while, she spoke again. Are you and Martin dating? No. Okay, but you sort of are. What will you do when you go back to London? Will you still see him? I don't know. I guess I'll cross that bridge when I come to it, said Alice. I'm not going to think about crossing it yet. In fact, I'm not even going to see the bridge for a good long while. Emily sighed. How does anyone ever know when they find the one? She drummed her fingers on her leg. I mean, I just don't want to settle, you know. Oh, I probably should have explained that they're on a car journey going to interview an author. Uh, sorry, an author, an, an artist. Or Alice is going to interview an artist. They were in the Weald now, an area stretching over parts of Sussex, Surrey and Kent, and once covered by an immense forest the Saxons called Andredsweald, the place with no dwelling. A crowd of motorbikes roared past, men in black leather who reached the crest of the hill ahead of them, each rider hanging suspended for a moment before disappearing out of sight. Emily fell into a doze, but woke just before they crossed the windswept expanse of Ashdown Forest, where the trees, cut down to feel 16th century ironworks, had been supplanted by yellow flowering gorse. Shallow soil lay over sandstone rocks. So tell me about this artist again. What do you want to know? Just, you know, about her life and stuff, not an art lecture. Okay, so she was born in 1949 in the Lufferton Islands off the coast of Norway and moved to London during the 1960s. For a while, she was a life model at the Slade, had an affair with one of the tutors and ended up going back the next year as a student. She produced a couple of fantastically influential paintings, the Abbess and Heron Insel, and moved to California to teach at CalArts. She was part of the Femme Arts programme, which was really... Did she get married or anything? Yes, she married a performance artist called Frankie Kay, dumb name. Divorced him a year later, moved to New York, was a founding member of the Columbus Club. Emily frowned. Kara says that feminists are basically women who've realised that men don't want to sleep with them. But I honestly think that's just a really stupid thing to say. I mean, obviously I'm not a feminist, obviously. But I do really appreciate everything your generation did for us. Alice raised her eyebrows. My generation? It was hard to know with Emily whether the fault lay with her grasp of modern history or her apparent belief that after 21, everyone was the same age and virtually dead. <laughs> I just don't know whether a career is compatible with marriage. Emily, said Alice. Yeah. Do you still feel sick? Try looking at something far away. She changed gears and accelerated. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm kind of hoping that some of the novel will perhaps be a fictionalised version of Life at Granta magazine. No, I'm sorry, there's a, there's a sad shake of the head there, but maybe, maybe for the next one. Um, great, thank you very much. Um, well, we're now um, nearly at the end of the evening. Um, I'm not going to say save the best to last because it's so disrespectful to everybody else, but we have to save something very, very good to last, um, which is Hisham Matar and his amazing new novel. Um, his uh, first novel was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and we were having a little chat earlier on about um, shenanigans at the Booker Dinner and so on. Um, so this is another of these books that were really um, 
everybody's been really looking forward to see what comes next. Um, and um, it's called Anatomy of a Disappearance. I'm now losing the ability to actually read my um, bit of paper. Anatomy of a Disappearance um, is um, a kind of very intense... Um, profound and passionate book. I've been really enjoying reading it. One of the sort of books where the details are just very precise and really with a few brush strokes conjures up an amazing world um, and a trio of very intriguing personalities. Uh, and the young boy at the centre of the book is very beautifully drawn. Um, and it's a really fine novel. Um, so um, you're going to read a little bit from it, perhaps tell us a little bit more about it. Um, but it's really very thrilling to have you here and um, for you to read to us. Thanks very much, Hisham Matar. Thank you. Thanks uh, for this wonderful introduction. And um, thanks for everyone uh, who's read before. It's been so enjoyable. The kind of week I've been having, this has been such a treat, just sitting here and closing my eyes and listening to the words. Um, I, I'm terrible at talking about my work. I think one of the privileges of having written a book is that you shouldn't be, able, you shouldn't be expected to speak about it. And um, Because I think it's different to painting or to music where the medium by which to describe the work is different from the medium that is used in making the work. And I think in novels, uh, because it's language, it seems that every word I choose to talk about the work would be kind of stolen from the work or borrowed from the work. Both of them are very good options. So I'm just going to read, I think. It's, uh, <clears throat> there are times when my father's absence is as heavy as a child sitting on my chest. Other times I can barely recall the exact features of his face and must bring out the photographs I keep in an old envelope in the drawer of my bedside table. There has not been a day since his sudden and mysterious vanishing that I have not been searching for him, looking in the most unlikely places. Everything and everyone, existence itself, has become an evocation, a possibility for resemblance. Perhaps this is what is meant by that brief and now almost archaic word, elegy. I do not see him in the mirror, but feel him adjusting, as if he were twisting within a shirt that nearly fits. My father has always been intimately mysterious, even when he was present. I can almost imagine how it might have been coming to him as an equal, as a friend, but not quite. My father disappeared in 1972 at the beginning of my school Christmas holiday when I was 14. Muna and I were staying at the Montreux Palace, taking breakfast, I with my large glass of bright orange juice and she with her steaming black tea on the terrace overlooking the steel blue surface of Lake Geneva, at the other end of which, beyond the hills and the bending waters, lay the now vacant city of Geneva. I was watching the silent paragliders hover above the still lake, and she was paging through La Tribune du Genève when suddenly her hand rose to her mouth and trembled. A few minutes later, 
We were aboard a train, hardly speaking, passing the newspaper back and forth. We collected from the police station the few belongings that were left on the bedside table. When I unsealed the small plastic bag, along with the tobacco and the lighter flint, I smelled him. That same watch is now wrapped round my wrist. And even today, after all these years, when I press the underside of the leather strap against my nostrils, I can detect a whiff of him. I wonder now how different my story would have been were Munna's hands unbeautiful, her fingertips coarse. I still, all of these years later, hear the same childish persistence. I saw her first, which bounced like a devil on my tongue whenever I caught one of father's claiming gestures, his fingers sinking into her hair, his hand landing on her skirted thigh with the absent-mindedness of a man touching his earlobe in mid-sentence. He had taken on to Western habit of holding hands, kissing, embracing in public, but he could not fool me. Like a bad actor, he seemed unsure of his steps. Whenever he would catch me watching him, he would look away and I swear I could see color in his cheeks. A dark tenderness rises in me now as I think how hard he had tried, how I yearn still for an easy sympathy with my father. Our relationship lacked what I have always believed possible, given time, and perhaps after I had become a man, after he had seen me become a father, a kind of emotional eloquence and ease. But now the distances that had then governed our interactions and cut a quiet gap between us continue to shape him in my thoughts. Thank you. It's a rather wonderful portrait of the boy becoming very um, interested to the point of obsession with his father's new wife and just brilliantly done. Um, and, and one of those wonderful kind of the, the point of view trick where you see what everybody else is thinking um, while not losing the kind of idea of the boy, what the boy's experiences are. Um, very classy book indeed. Um, so I'd just like to thank all our wonderful authors tonight. Thank you for coming along, all the bloggers. And a big, big thanks to everyone at Penguin for your faith in excellent writing and literary writing um, in very difficult times for publishing and for writers. You're keeping the faith, and we love you for that. So thank you to Penguin, and thank you, everybody, for coming. You can find out more about all the authors who read at our Bloggers' Night on our website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.